Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast downloaded over three-quarters of a million times in over 160 countries and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage, coming to you from Ngunnawal and Ngambri country. This is episode 267 of the Australian Hiker Podcast. And in this week's episode, we catch up with Amanda Dudgeon to talk about the Thin Green Line. We hope you enjoy. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice so that each episode is available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. The Thin Green Line is a global not-for-profit organisation that exists to support park and wildlife rangers in their fight for conservation and is solely dedicated to supporting rangers and their families in what can sometimes present them with life-threatening challenges. In this podcast episode, we catch up with Amanda Dudgeon to discuss her journey walking the Thin Green Line across Oceania, hoping to be a catalyst that initiates meaningful change for Oceania rangers. Amanda, thanks for taking the time to talk with Australian Hiker. Ah, thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Before we start talking about walking the thin green line, Oceania, tell us a bit about yourself and your background. Absolutely. So I'm currently a National Parks Ranger in north coast of New South Wales. So I work in the Kyogle office of the National Parks and Wildlife Service New South Wales. I've been a ranger for nine years, starting with the uh, South Australian National Parks in Adelaide Hills and also spent a year in the Northern Territory at Ormiston Gorge Ranger Station. All right. Uh, and how did you become a ranger? I mean, that's always – that's. I, th- I think for a lot of people – the idea of being a, being a ranger seems like a really wonderful job, but how did you end up getting into the ranger uh, field? Yeah, a lot of people do say um, you've got a fantastic office um, without realising that we do actually spend a lot of our time in a, a four-walled office. But I started off actually as a, a chef, a fine dining chef in Melbourne. And then when I was studying at the University of Gastronomic Science in Italy, I ran a, a workshop for the Commission for Sustainable Development on youth and children in Africa and desertification and a few different issues and was really inspired by the youth there to pursue a career in sustainability and conservation and natural resources because that was sort of where my natural knowledge lay. Um, so I returned to Australia to study natural resources at, at university, at the University of Queensland. And then during those studies, I did a course on protected area management and met a really fantastic ranger called Barry Nolan. He was a very passionate fellow out of Ellie Beach and is still working there as a uh, pest animal officer. And uh, yeah, he really inspired the whole group and sort of uh, set that seed of Oh, you know, you could really make a difference as, as a ranger. So when I finished my studies and my, my honours thesis, I uh, was applying for graduate programs around Australia and saw the graduate ranger program in South Australia and went, oh, that'd be pretty amazing. So I applied for that and yeah, got the job and the rest is history really. So since 2014. Okay. Now you mentioned you're working in Northern New South Wales at the moment. What's your, what is your current role entail? Uh, so my current role is a, a ranger is my title. 
Um, and so in New South Wales, uh, rangers primarily spend actually quite a lot of their time in the office. So we are patch rangers who then have a functional aspect to our job as well. So as a patch ranger, we have certain parks assigned to us and we sort of plan and look after everything in those parks. So before the start of my trip, there were seven parks I was responsible for, totaling about 32,000 hectares. And within that area, I was responsible for looking after all the different assets, such as roads and trails and wonderful things such as toilets and campgrounds and, and all that sort of thing, as well as the, obviously the threatened species, dealing with plants and animals that should and shouldn't be there, as well as your basics of, of uh, fencing, fire management, looking after visitors, all sorts of different things. And then I also have a particular role. So my function is also looking after visitor services and volunteers. That's where I'm sort of that point of contact within our area, the Richmond River area, for that program. Over the last... Roughly a year, you've been involved in a project called Walking the Thin Green Line Oceana. Tell us a bit more about that. What, what is it? Um, so it's my own crazy idea and expedition inspired by the colleagues I've worked with and the founder of the Thin Green Line Foundation, Sean Wilmore. So the Thin Green Line Foundation is the charity for rangers around the world. So it supports families of fallen rangers as well as supports rangers by providing uh, equipment and training in places where they don't normally have access to that. So uh, I was very lucky to work with Sean and the Thin Green Line Foundation whilst I was a ranger in South Australia. Um, I was really inspired with the work that, that they do and what they achieve for rangers around the world because, you know, two to three rangers are killed every week somewhere in the world. So in the last 12 months during my trip, in fact, 148 rangers lost their lives. So their work is incredibly important. And then when I arrived in my current role as a ranger in New South Wales, I have a fantastic team who really trust and respect and value my skills. And so I felt very comfortable in my career and wanted to do something more. So I knew that uh, I got back into hiking as well when I was working in Central Australia, looking after the Larapinta Trail and people follow journeys and want to support things that they can follow along on and, and sort of those physical challenges as well. And with everyone sort of looking in their own backyard because of COVID and, and new people visiting our parks as well due to the, the changes that COVID has had on our society. So I thought, well, if you put all of it together and listen to far too many adventure podcasts um, like this one, <laughs> then um, you can see that the power of, of communicating in that way. Uh, so I thought, well, why not travel around Oceania? Um, so I've, I've taken 12 months leave without pay from work to travel around the region, visiting eight different nations, which is Australia, New Zealand, Tonga, Fiji, Samoa, Solomon Islands and East Timor, Timor-Leste, in meeting rangers, recording and filming them, telling their stories to make a documentary um, and also hiking a kilometre for every ranger on the International Ranger Federation on a roll. And that's every ranger killed in the line of duty since we started recording them in 2009. So 1,610 uh, rangers have died since 2009, and that's how many kilometres I hiked during the trip. And that raises a couple of questions for me. What's the reason that rangers die? I mean, you know, it's like any job, there's always potentially risks, but is there are there things that are uh, particularly dangerous about being a ranger, or it depends on the country that you happen to be in? It definitely depends on the country and, and the region and your managing agency as well, if you work for government versus being a ranger in an Indigenous protected area or something like that. So in 2021 and 2022, the majority of rangers killed were from Africa due to homicides from poachers. But then, you know, in the last 12 months during my trip, we saw 41 rangers killed in India alone. So it's the most of any country in the world. Um, and that can be anything from, you know, uh, murders by from illegal loggers, accidents on the job, 
I mean, not all rangers have access to good medical care, to first aid training, first aid kits, or are in proximity to medical care that will be able to save their lives from what might even be a very minor injury, and not to mention the animals that we manage as well. I mean, Queensland lost a ranger a few years ago to a shark attack. We have lost rangers to crocodile attacks and also rangers to helicopter incidents. That's sort of some of the the bigger risks, along with fire, obviously, in um, Oceania particularly. Now, the other thing you mentioned that you'd taken a year is you're off to go through and do this project. Uh, have you got someone supporting you with this or are you you're totally self-funded? I do have one sponsor uh, called Adam Oss who provided some of my filming equipment and were very, very lovely in providing some uh, support towards covering uh, the cost of fuel for Australia, which is very expensive. The closer I got to the trip uh, last year, the more expensive our fuel became. But uh, Basically, apart from that, it is entirely self-funded, so I am officially flat broke at this point in time <laughs> and now owe my sister an incredible amount of money because she's a wonderful sister and has helped fund the trip pretty much from or just over halfway through. So when did you start walking the Thin Green Line journey? What was the kickoff date? Yeah, so to uh, make it more meaningful and really bring home the, the ranger aspect, it was World Ranger Day last year, so July 31 each year is World Ranger Day, to July 31 this year, so 366 days in total. Um, so it started at the Royal National Park in Sydney, which is, of course, the very first national park in Oceania and uh, only the second in the world. But there's a bit of controversy around which ones are first and not, so... I'm just going to leave it there. (laughs) Uh, And then it finished at Wilson's Promontory National Park in Victoria, which was where uh, Sean Wilmore was first inspired to um, do his very first trip, which was uh, around the world for two years to then make the very first Thin Green Line documentary. Okay, now if if people just listen to that 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 statement is there, it sounds like you're walking walking from south of Sydney to Melbourne, basically, but you didn't go in a straight line. So where did the journey take you? So, yeah, no, it's definitely a lot doing things the, the difficult way. Um, there was a lot of planning involved actually in the trip because within Oceania we obviously have a lot of interesting places within the tropical zone, which uh, is not somewhere you want to be during the height of the wet season. So I had to plan around two summers and two wet seasons, so cyclone seasons essentially. Uh, so I started off in Sydney and went north. Um, so that I could have the winter and going into spring across the top end. Uh, so it was a build up to the wet, so incredibly hot and humid, but definitely doable. I went all the way around Australia, so up to the very top of the Cape, all the way far out west to a steep point, the most westerly point of mainland Australia, all the way down around the bottom across the bite. And then uh, did Tasmania as well. Uh, before heading over to Norfolk Island and then New Zealand. Fortunately, whilst I was in Tasmania, the cyclone hit New Zealand and uh, kind of put that planning back uh, to square one. Uh, so I started with the South Island and finished with the North. And then just to, to keep me on my toes, the wet season continued into June uh, when normally it would finish in uh, sort of April. So I had to change the plan to sail through the Pacific to flying to be able to go through Tonga and, and Fiji and those areas. Um, so 30 fly flights later on the trip, finally got back uh, to Australia. So um, also Timor-Leste, I was meant to be doing that in the middle of the trip. It's very close to Darwin. But unfortunately, because I was involved in the Lismore floods, my passport went the way of the floods and it wasn't quite ready yet. Um, so I tapped that onto the end of the island's leg of the trip, which ended up being quite good. So did Australia first, then New Zealand, then through the Pacific Islands. And the last little bit was the second leg in Australia, which was uh, Sydney, down through the south coast, ACT, down through the snowy country and finishing at Wilson's Prom. Okay. So, yeah, so it's, it's taking you a while. And and did you manage to do it in a year or was it uh... – 
I did. It was a mad rush at the end to get the hikes in because it was such a hot build up to the wet. So I got very few hikes done across the top end. And then obviously with all the damage in the North Island of New Zealand, I didn't quite get access to as many hikes as I would have liked to. And obviously through the Pacific Islands, there's not a lot of hiking that you can do. And I got sick as well, sick as a dog twice there. So I um, ended up with uh, quite a few Ks to try and finish in that last month. Um, so the focus was on meeting rangers and then desperately asking where I can get a few Ks in on the day. But yeah, it came down to the very last day. So World Range Day. So 30, July 31, Monday a week ago. And uh, we just had six Ks to go, which was really great. And the wonderful thing about Wilson's Prom is that there's so many walking opportunities there that it was actually really lovely to, to get a few things done over that last weekend. Okay. So as you were traveling around on this trip, what were you actually doing apart from walking? What were you actually doing as part of this, uh, this project? So obviously the focus is is the ranges. So whenever I was uh, going to any one location, apart from um, mind maddening, maddening uh, logistics, which was a bit of a nightmare um, because of the sort of weather systems that we've had over the last two years um, and also some of the challenges that the parks agencies are having with recruitment and vacancies, it was very difficult to, to plan very far ahead. So often I was quite literally... Uh, planning on the road for where I was going to put my head to sleep in three days time. Um, so aside from that, it was meeting the, the rangers, the teams, chatting to them, um, seeing what they do, uh, going out on patrol with them um, or doing activities with them. I've done everything from oiling bridges to um, going on a bandicoot surveys to, you know, all sorts of trapping quolls, um, all sorts of bits and pieces, checking tracks uh, to build that trust to then be able to essentially pull the camera out and interview staff. So I was then doing filmed interviews um, with rangers, uh, which is very, very difficult to do because they don't like getting in front of the camera. Um, So it's sort of like, yeah, never work with uh, children, animals or rangers as it turns out. Um, So it was a mixture of sort of travelling. Sometimes I'd be driving, particularly the Australia League of the Trip, eight, nine hours a day to get to the next location and then it was going out with them and and meeting the teams and also just talking about some of the challenges they face and um, some of the commonalities that we all share, um, which is really important and connecting them as well with other rangers and sharing some of the information I'd sort of learned at the start of the trip with people in another location where they didn't know that, but it would be really beneficial to their work. So that was a really interesting aspect Um, and uh, sometimes attending events with them as well. Um, So there was a lot of For any day, it was um, logistics, travelling, interviewing, backing up footage, backing up data, um, charging batteries, you know, packing up and packing down again. So constantly on the move, you sort of had to make sure that you had routines and places for everything. Otherwise, if you forgot something, it was a bit of a a nightmare to get it back again. Now, were you actually travelling by yourself or did you have friends, partners, film crew travelling with you or...? Um, film crew would have been nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was. I did speak to a few filmmakers before, and they thought I was completely insane um, that I was going to be doing all of it. But no, it was just just me, except for um, the section between Darwin and Broome, due to some of the challenges that that area was facing at the time. Um, it was wise to have a, another individual with me. Uh, so I had a friend come along who was absolutely wonderful, Amelia, uh, but unfortunately she uh, lives in Berlana, Victoria, so it came from extremely cold Victorian weather to over 40 degrees and almost died the entire time and had not been in the field for a long time. So she, it was a bit of a um, trial by fire for her. And then I did have a friend uh, come with me to Samoa who's a Queensland ranger, to, to work with those rangers. And also there was three wildlife officers who came with me to Papua New Guinea to meet the Tequila Conservation Alliance rangers, which was really life change for them and, and 
good for safety perspective, but it was wonderful to also share that experience with other people. It was a particularly special one. So I have had some people come along the way, but essentially it was me sort of doing doing everything. So doing the website, doing the filming, doing the logistics, um, doing social media, just yeah, pretty much everything, which is slightly insane. So, so you didn't get bored, in other words. <laughs> Definitely not. It was. I mean, people have asked, "Have you? Were you sort of lonely?" And I was like, "Well, not really. I was always with the Ranger family, you know, always with new people, but you know, similar souls, um, the same kind of values, and just that uh, those wonderful conversations you get in in talking shop with with someone who does the same kind of job. You can just all of us can." can talk for hours about the work that we do because we love it so much. So, uh, yeah, I definitely didn't feel alone. Though sometimes when you were hiking, if you were at a really amazing location, like I got to go to the top of uh, Mount Luxmore, which started the Kepler track, and that was such an incredible day. It was absolutely crystal clear, dead still, and I had it to myself, which is pretty much never happens. Um, so sometimes you're like, oh, it'd be kind of nice to, to have someone here to share it with, but at the same time it was incredible to do it uh, myself as well. Okay, so you were going around – basically Australia and the Asia Pacific who are talking to rangers and rangers groups. So I believe you're also fundraising at the same time as part of this process? Yeah, absolutely. It was a great opportunity to be able to raise funds for the Three Green Line Foundation, but specifically raise funds for our region, for Oceania. And and rightly so, the Green Line uh, Foundation was set up originally to support rangers in Africa, um, where we've got sort of the highest level of fatalities, greatest need for support. Uh, in Oceania, we have a lot of small island nations with community rangers who are not paid, who don't have uniforms, who don't have first aid kits, first aid training, um, access to any of the sort of uh, equipment or support or OHNS that, that we have in Australia and New Zealand. And also, I mean, just in Solomon Islands alone, some of the rangers working up behind the back of Honiara um, in their village areas, there's still unexploded ordinances and mines, and they maintain trails through these areas and they don't get paid. So they're reliant on tourists coming and being guided. That brings the money into the village. But they, so they cannot afford to pay American companies a fortune to remove American unexploded ordinances from World War II. So those sort of basic things that we really need to start supporting our rangers in Oceania more. And that's where we have great ranger associations around our region in Australia and New Zealand who can provide that support and peer-to-peer training. But the, the fundraising is really about an Oceania fund to support those peer-to-peer initiatives and that's yes providing um, those uniforms and equipment but also rangers going over and supporting them and providing that first day training or providing that sharing their knowledge and experience to capacity build these these rangers and support them Um, because even just during my trip when I've gone over there they were just so thankful and grateful and just amazed that a, a ranger wanted to come and see them in their little village so that was so prominent in, in Papua New Guinea. It was actually incredible when I had those three Queensland wildlife officers come with me and we arrived finally in the village of Lumi. It was a bit of a debacle with flights trying to get there from Port Moresby to, to Weewak in the north and then the little flight on the um, the MAFS airline where they pray at the start of each flight, which certainly makes you wonder if it's actually safe. Um, and then you arrived there and there was – 85 rangers lined up proudly wearing their donated Patagonia uniforms just to meet us because they couldn't believe that rangers from Australia wanted to meet them. And some of them had walked 24 hours, no shoes, through the bush, through slippery things, just to be there to meet us. And that was, I think, really life-changing for those Queensland rangers and, and certainly for me and really sort of brought home the importance of the trip and the importance of connecting rangers around our region and how much that will, what that means for them and for their village and for them as leaders in their villages, that they're valued and 
that uh, we want to support them. So that just is life change for everyone involved. Now, if, if someone wants to help support the cause, is there a link on your website or is there somewhere they can go to, do, to, to donate? Yeah, so there's uh, walkingthethingreenline.com, which is my expedition website where there's a link to click donate, um, and the, which sits on the Thing Green Line Foundation website. So you can also click the link in the bio on Instagram and on Facebook um, to follow through to that donations page. And you can either just donate straight away as an individual, or you can set up a group to, to raise funds because we'll continue to raise funds for the next year until World Ranger Day next year when the documentary is planned to be released um, to then provide more funding. So wonderfully, we've already raised over $43,000, which is just incredible. Uh, but I'd love to see even more to be able to also get some of these rangers over to the World Ranger Congress to meet other uh, rangers from all over the, around the world, and particularly our First Nations rangers, because the opportunity to meet other First Nation rangers from around the world, just the, again, life-changing for them to, a lot of them don't realise that there's people on the other side of the world who are also First Nations, who are also connected to country, who are going through the same kind of challenges, and they're just blown away and inspired um, and can go back and inspire their own communities with, oh, you know, we've got brothers and sisters around the world doing the same thing and we're not alone. All right, that's great. I will put the links to uh, where you can donate in the podcast show notes and the Walking the Thin Green Line Oceana website. So if you go to the show notes for this podcast episode, uh, you'll find those links if you want to want to help out. From starting this trip and what you'd thought it was going to be, how did it end up? Did it... You know, you obviously had issues with cyclones and weather, but overall, did you think you achieved what you'd planned to or did it end up being better than what you'd planned it to be? Yeah, I think I, I went into it pretty open-minded because it already had to be fairly flexible. It already pushed it back a year due to, to COVID and knew that the best approach was to, to be open-minded and flexible and just go with the flow essentially um so it was everything i wanted it to be and more in terms of raising incredible amount of money doing some fantastic hikes around oceania that was pretty special meeting just incredible ranges and in some of the ranges i met you know you'd be doing an interview and you're kind of sitting there trying to trying to stay calm and be cool and not show just how amazing that person is and uh, how excited you are with what they're saying and also just um connecting everyone i think it was really the thing that sort of is more than I thought it would be is this how much it's meant to those rangers just to see their headspace change from when you arrived um, to when you left where some of them might be in a really difficult place in terms of their mental health or or how they're seeing life in a remote part of NT or uh, different places in Australia or or overseas to then see them absolutely inspired and sort of reconnecting with why they're a ranger or just really inspired and amazed uh, that there's a whole family of rangers in this region and even around the world um, who support them and care for what they care for and know that you know you're not alone. Now the question now begs where to next? So you've you've officially finished and I'm assuming you're making your way slowly back home or uh, so what's what's next on your things to do? Are you back at work or are you, t- you taking some time off? Um, yes, I'm using the very last of the leave I could possibly have access to um, to uh, give me a bit of space this month. Um, so I'm back at work on the 28th of August at uh, 8 a.m. according to my ranger in charge. Um, and then it's really the next 12 months is all about making the documentary about um, communicating on social media all the things that I didn't have time to do during the trip, um, working with the different uh, agencies that uh, I've connected with 
uh, in promoting rangers and also uh, exploring my new role as the uh, Oceania Ranger Ambassador for the Thin Green Line Foundation um, and what that might look like for, for rangers in our region. Okay, that's good. Uh, and do you know what you'll be doing when you go back to work? Is that you slotting back into the job you had previously or you don't know got quite yet? Um, I have a vague idea, so I'm not slotting back into the original parks I looked after. The the ranger who's in a, a new position um, is who took over my parks whilst I was overseas um, is looking after those. So I think I believe I'm getting brand new parks that have, have come across under koala habitat um, in New South Wales. So I think brand new parks and brand new opportunities, uh, particularly working with traditional owners. So it will be very, very exciting. So basically I have no idea, uh, but I've been told it's, it's new parks. So very exciting to, to have something and you're different to go back to. All right. That's great. So we've been talking to Amanda from Walking the Thin Green Line Oceana. Thanks for taking time to chat with us. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Okay, so that was a bit of a unique interview with Amanda there on the Thin Green Line Oceana. I must admit, I had some awareness of the issues that rangers have worldwide, particularly in places like Africa, but I didn't realise the extent, uh, nor that the fact that there was a a charity organisation that was set up to, to help them out. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think uh, coming from Australia, we make some assumptions about um, just in the fact that they would have clothing, they would have boots, they would have, you know, first aid kits. um, And, you know, when you think about it, and I think that's probably the thing, you probably don't think about it. But in other nations, that's obviously not the case. And the Thin Green Line is doing such a great job in raising awareness and funds. Now, one of the thing, one comment I would make here, and I, I've, I've talked to a number of rangers over the years, and Amanda did mention about what it was she did as a ranger, because many people tend to look at the <laughs> rangers' jobs as, oh, this is really amazing. You get to walk around the bush all day and drive around the four-wheel drive and, and you interact with animals, where in reality it's often about maintenance and Number one on the list for many, many rangers is the toilets. Uh, Yes, but also the office. I mean, uh, that's what she was saying. They spent a lot of time in the office and, yes, the unglamorous bits um, around the toilet. So, you know, I think that's a lesson for all of us every time we have a visit to make sure that we don't make it uh, unpleasant for the ranger who has to come along and do the cleaning. So Amanda's journey over the last... 12 to 15 months, really, and it was probably longer than that because, as she said, this journey was delayed by COVID, so she'd probably been in planning for a number of years. And this was to raise awareness of the Thin Green Line charity organisation and, in particular, uh, try and get a bit of emphasis in the Oceana region. And really, as a charity for rangers, you tend to think about what the issues are in Africa and the poachers and you know, it being a really dangerous job to be a ranger to protect animals from, from people whose job it is to kill animals to try and make money out of them. So it's, it's, a, it's a hard life. It's not just a matter of going to work and potentially having a vehicle accident or uh, having something occur like that. It's being in a situation where your life is at risk, particularly in the, in the African continent. Amanda was also saying that even some simple injuries could potentially be quite adverse given that they don't have basic first aid kits. Um, So things that wouldn't 
necessarily worry us can have a big impact on rangers overseas. And she was saying that two to three rangers were killed every week uh, throughout the world. Uh, and yeah, and that's that's really a frightening figure. Now it doesn't compare to to car accidents and things like that, but it was a figure that was much higher than I would have ever thought. And being killed at work, yeah, you know, yeah. We've got a big thing about that in Australia that you know we we're very focused on that, and uh, we wouldn't accept that kind of rate of uh, injury or death. So in relation to the journey itself, uh, one of the things that did surprise me with this is Amanda mentioned that she was pretty much self-funded. She, uh, she didn't start this trip with a Sister-funded, I think. Yes, <laughs> sister-funded. <laughs> what a great sister. <laughs> Keep that one. <laughs> she didn't start this trip you know, with a huge bucket load of money that people had donated to her. And, and apparently I talked to her and she said that uh, uh, the, the camera equipment and the recording equipment was provided for her. But, you know, spending a year supporting herself, driving around the countryside, flying internationally, uh, uh, did require her to get a family loan. And her, and her sister was very happy to help her. But, you know, it's it's the sort of thing that, you know, you, you either say, well, sorry, I'm not going to do this until I've got the money raised to undertake this trip, or you just put yourself out there and see what happens. And it was interesting to see that she... Her, her focus on fundraising is not about paying her back. It's about raising money for the cause. Uh, so she said she didn't want to put a, go, a crowdfunding request up for her to do the trip, preferring instead to have donations go to the Thin Green Line to support rangers. Yeah, she didn't want to confuse uh, where people were going to donate. So, yeah, uh, and I, I just keep coming back to her sister who, you know, that's such a generous thing, obviously believes in Amanda, which, you know, having uh, listened to the interview, very impressive and, you know, I'm sure we've all got uh, people like that in our lives that we should be supporting. Now, Amanda mentioned there's a couple of books in her from this trip. The first one was a coffee table book, which is <laughs> which is aimed at being a fundraiser for the Thin Green Line. But also uh, she might actually end up with a book uh, talking about her journey and a trip and that may be one mechanism which she can long-term try and recoup some of the, the uh, uh, large expenses for her to do this trip back again. So it'll be interesting to see what happens through that uh, and see what they come out like. Now, logistical considerations is something we tend not to think about with these sort of trips. Now, you tend to think, well, all right, I'm going to go for a hike. And Jill and I often complain about the whole concept of planes, trains and automobiles, but that's going No, from, you complain about that. <laughs> but that's going from a, a, a mainland city in Australia to another mainland city. <laughs> and maybe a country town. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whereas when you've got to actually con- consider – the impact of weather conditions, you know, wet season and can you get in, into an area. And there are some parts of Australia where the roads do get cut off and towns do get cut off uh, at certain times of the year. You know, getting overseas, and she was hoping to actually sail to some of the Oceania states, but again, the, the cyclones and everything else that were happening forced her onto an aeroplane. Although that didn't necessarily sound like it was any any safer or better <laughs> when, when people pray before each flight. <laughs> <laughs> she also made a, a lovely quote in here was never work with children, animals or rangers. <laughs> and, and I must admit, I've, I have interviewed and talked to a number of rangers over the years, both for Australian Hiker podcast and also prior to that. And you get some rangers, like any percentage of the population, 
that are happy to be out there and happy to talk. But as soon as you stick in a microphone or a camera in front of them, they tend to seize they up. They freeze and- <laughs> up. <laughs> they freeze up, yeah. It's a particular personality type, isn't it, that you need that, that'll be comfortable with that. But, um, look, I, th- I got the impression that, you know, she's working on a documentary and uh, she she has enough material to <laughs> to get her through. So um, something we should be supporting when, when it comes out. Now, as we said, uh, we will put the link in the show notes to her website uh, to take you through to the uh, funding for the Thin Green Line, particularly with the focus on the Oceania region. Uh, so if you do want to help out on this, you know, the link is there if you want to help help out support ranges that are in need of this sort of funding, particularly when they were t- she was talking about uh, a group of rangers in the Solomon Islands who do not get paid uh, particularly in the case of removing uh, undetonated munitions out of the area uh, from World War II, uh, and their, their their funding comes from tourists visiting the area. So they're essentially working for nothing to help their communities in the long run. So anything that we can do to support that uh, would certainly be beneficial. Um, I'd like to give a, a shout-out to for Patagonia, uh, and she was. She mentioned during the interview that they'd actually provided uniforms for a number of rangers in PNG, and it's it's good that organisations that do support the outdoors do help uh, in supporting uh, other outdoor connected organisations, albeit ranger organisations, when no one else is. So that's good to see. Well done. Yeah, and need more of it. Hey. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and hearing about the Thin Green Line, uh, particularly in relation to Amanda's journey in Oceana. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me. Okay, so we hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you've enjoyed hearing about the Thin Green and yet you've enjoyed hearing...